Hey, 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 party people, and welcome back to Sustain. I'm Sydney Murray, and this is a podcast about environmental, social, and economic justice. So today, I am sitting down with the one and only Dr. Nalini Nedkarni, active professor emeritus in the University of Utah's Department of Biology. And for those of you who do not know of this incredible woman already, I am so thrilled to be the one to introduce you to her truly amazing work as a pioneering forest canopy ecologist. Nalini was one of the first ecologists back in the 80s who initiated the field of forest canopy research in Monteverde, Costa Rica, where she has a long-term field site along with another field site based in the Olympic rainforest of Washington State. Nalini has used mountain climbing equipment and skills to make her ascent into tree canopies to conduct research that has helped us to better understand canopy ecosystems and the importance of protecting their biodiversity. And some trees are actually capable of putting out roots from their own branches and trunks that go into this canopy soil and are able to absorb nutrients from the canopy soil that they themselves sort of support. Not only did Nalini set the stage for rainforest canopy research, but her career has also focused on the importance of science communication to broader audiences beyond academia. You all are in for a real treat today as we get to hear about just a few of the many public engagement projects and initiatives she's led. So just to get us started, Nalini, I would love for you to talk about how you got into this this field or realm of ecology. Ecology, tree ecology, tree canopy ecology. It just seems to like elevate in specificity and niche. Well, that's a long question, but as with so many scientists, um, that journey towards, you know, being a natural historian or being an ecologist or being a scientist, you know, started really early on. A lot of scientists were fascinated by bugs, like my husband, who's an entomologist, just when he was three years old, he was collecting bugs. But for me, the, the, the big thing was trees. And my parents, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, which is like a suburb of Washington, D.C. Yeah, oh, you're kidding. Oh, great. Yeah. So, you know, that eastern deciduous forest and those wonderful big umbrella-shaped trees. So there were these eight maple trees that um, that lined the driveway of my parents' home, and there were five kids. And um, I had sort of this interesting, somewhat chaotic family background. My dad was from India. He was a Hindu. He was a scientist. He worked for the National Institutes of Health um, in cancer research. And my mom was from Brooklyn, New York. She was raised as an Orthodox Jew. Her parents came from Russia. So it was this sort of totally mixed background of of India and Russia and Brooklyn, New York, and um, and there were five kids and pets and homework and chores and everything. So for me, being able to um, find just a little patch of peace, you know, in that sort of scrambled family was really important. And for me, it came by climbing trees, those eight maple trees on the in the front yard. And for me also, it was like these trees were so strong and they were silent and they didn't ask anything of me. The trees were just there as non-judgmental, non-expectant beings. And I guess I felt even at that young age that I wanted to do something that would I don't know, somehow, I mean, this sounds so silly, but somehow pay back these trees. Not those particular trees, but all trees. And it it struck me that trees don't have a voice. You know, they don't speak. They don't communicate in any way that humans can figure out how they're communicating. So I just, I didn't know how I would help them. Because at the time, you know, there weren't, I thought, oh, well, I'll be a forest ranger, you know, and help people in national parks. Or I'll be a firefighter and protect them against fire. 
Um, because I didn't even know that the field of ecology existed until I went to college. So that's when I first became sort of interested in field biology, and I, I loved my classes, and I really felt like that is a way I could make a contribution is to better understand trees and to communicate what I learned about trees to other people. And where did you study ecology? So that was at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. So I went there as, for my undergraduate work. And then I went to graduate school, um, in forest ecology. I got my PhD in forest ecology at the University of Washington in Seattle. And my first year of graduate school, I took this course. It was a field course in Costa Rica in tropical biology and was a course designed specifically for graduate students who want to sort of explore the world of tropical biology. So they fly you down there and there were these 20 other graduate students and these fabulous faculty members and we went to three or four research stations in Costa Rica and just learned all about the tropical rainforest. And we did field problems and we had our own independent study project. And I just when I went to this place called Monteverde, which is one of the field stations in Costa Rica, and I just looked up into this cloud forest canopy and like there were these birds and monkeys and orchids and ferns and bromeliads and I just went like, holy moly, like what is going on in the forest canopy? Was this your first time in a, a rainforest? It was the first time in, my, in a tropical rainforest and I was so impressed with like this world that just seemed to be slightly out of reach of people. And my professors who were on the course said, well, you know, we really don't know that much about it. It's kind of like an unknown world because we can't get there safely. We can't get there non-destructively. So we sort of wait for stuff to fall on the forest floor. So it's really kind of an unknown world. And at that time, it was actually called the last biotic frontier. Wow. And when was this? This was 1979. So canopy research is really quite new. It's super young. So when I started out, the canopy was really as unknown in some ways as the surface of the moon because people just hadn't spent time there. That's so exciting. Yeah, it was like so exciting. So imagine yourself, you know, a 26-year-old going like, what am I going to do with my scientific career, you know, my life? Well, why not study something that brings what you love most, which is climbing trees and taking care of trees and understanding them with, at the same time, exploring this different part of the forest than other people have looked at before. And there were a few other sort of canopy research pioneers at the same, going on at that time. And I learned how to do use rock climbing techniques and mountain climbing techniques to get up to the top of the forest canopy. Um, and so I spent time with a guy, this guy named Don Perry, who was pioneering these techniques in the tropics. So he taught me and he, I took photos for him for his dissertation work. But it sort of got me like feeling, okay, I, I now have the tools to do this. I know how I can climb any tree in this rainforest. So I kind of just started super basic. My first questions were, what is the biomass of these canopy plants that live in these tropical rainforests? And so there was just sort of this open acreage of, of scientific questions to ask and answer. And so I feel really lucky as a science, you know, as a young scientist that back then that I was able to take on kind of a world that most scientists didn't even really know anything about. And so everything I found felt like new and exploration and discovery. Truly just so fascinating, Millie. Thank you for sharing more about your background and how you got into ecology and canopy research. Truly, I just, I can't believe how new of a, a field of study this is, just the past like 40, 45 years. Uh, that's crazy. 
I would love to shift gears ever so slightly to talk more about your work in public engagement and science communication. So, as I said, I just feel really happy and fortunate that I was kind of in at the beginning and I've been able to see it develop and contribute it to it to some extent to, to produce students who are interested in the forest canopy. You know, to, I started organizing the canopy science community. We started a group called the International Canopy Network. It was a nonprofit. And the idea was um, I became really concerned with, um, with, with what I dealt with as a kid, which is if people knew more about how great trees are, then maybe they would take better care of them because trees can't ask you or me, hey, take better care of me. Um, So I was, as I, you know, and and this was starting sort of in the early 1990s when all of us tropical biologists and, and the public began hearing about deforestation and the rates of deforestation and how fast we were cutting down trees and how developing countries were dependent on forestry and changing forests into pastures to make cattle, to get money. And so... Being a scientist at that time, being a tropical scientist especially, when you're just literally surrounded by, you know, these forests that are protected, like I was working in the Monteverde Cloud Forest Reserve, which is a protected, it's a private reserve where I could work in a primary forest. But, you know, just out, I remember one day I was hearing a chainsaw just outside the borders of this reserve, and I thought, holy moly, chainsaws right outside the reserve? What am I doing about this? What do I make of of it? And what should I, what action should I be taking? And I knew that I was taking some actions. I mean, I was writing scientific papers. I was publishing books. I was getting grants. I was having students. I was, but it didn't, it seemed like all of that communication was just going to other scientists. And so I began doing things like consulting with National Geographic to make this, you know, like a television show about the forest canopy. It was called Heroes of the High Frontier. So I started writing these books and articles, and I thought, and, you know, like working with National Geographic and helping to write National Geographic articles about the forest canopy. And at first I thought, oh, great. You know, I have a nonprofit that is communicating educational materials to educators and to conservationists and to the general public. But pretty soon I started thinking about, wait a minute, who watches these National Geographic documentaries? They're just people who, they're like you and me, like, oh, I'll, I'll turn on a documentary about rainforests. But what about the people who would rather watch, you know, race car driving? Nothing against that, but it ain't about rainforests. And so I need to just maybe stop spending so much time working to create materials that are going to be read by people who are already convinced that trees and forests are important. So that's when I began thinking more extensively and expansively about who out there needs to hear about trees and from whom do I need to hear about trees. And so I began thinking about the only way that people really will protect something as if they value it. Well, if someone doesn't inherently care about the ecological values of trees, then what would they care about? And so maybe they'll care about trees because they connect with their religion. So I thought, well, maybe faith-based groups would be a good group to connect with and to talk about values of trees, not from their ecological standpoint, but from their religious and spiritual standpoint. And I thought, well, how do I find out what the religious values of trees are? And then I thought, why don't I just read their holy scriptures? Because the Bible, the Talmud, the Quran, you know, all these stories, so to speak, all of these scriptures 
people who believe in them believe in them. So I began reading through the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Talmud, and other religious scripts. And then I just ended up downloading them from the web and doing a search for the words trees and forests. And that's when I found like the Old Testament has 328 references to the word tree. I thought, wow, what are those verses? So I read all the verses and I cataloged them into like analogies to God or geographical locations or practical use like food or decorations for temples. And it turns out the Bible is full of these references to the importance of trees to the people who are of that faith. So I also began looking at the um, like the celebrations and the rituals of different world religions. For example, the Jews celebrate this wonderful holiday called Tub Shabbat, which is the new year for the trees. And it's where it's it's usually the beginning of February. In fact, it was February 5th of this year. It changes dates because it's on the Jewish calendar instead of the our calendar. Um, but they but you had to sort of set a date to count the when how many fruits were being produced by a given tree in order to pay taxes for it. So it started out as a sort of economic value, but then pretty soon Jews began saying, hey, you know, trees give us a lot of gifts. We should be grateful and be thankful to God for providing us with trees that give us fruits and nuts and spices and things like that. So they set aside this holiday, which was originally this tax thing, but turned into this really spiritual, like, let's honor trees. And it has now turned into a time when people give money for reforestation in, in Israel and in their local communities. So it's moved away from just being this economic thing and the spiritual thing into actually being a time when people think about the gifts that trees give us and thinking about how do we give back to trees. So that was really a lovely way to think about all these different values of trees. And so I was able to put together a sermon about trees and spirituality, which I, and then I began just knocking on churches and saying, hey, I'm a scientist, but I really, really treasure trees, and I've read your holy scriptures, and I've, I found out all this stuff that you might be interested in. And so I was able to then... I've probably given that sermon to like over 40 places of worship of all different faiths. And so that was a way to convey this idea that churchyards, not just churches, but churchyards are sacred places. And then you can think, well, if the churchyards are sacred, maybe the soil sacred. Mm -hmm. And if the soil sacred, then maybe the trees that grow in that soil might be sacred too. Mm -hmm. And if, <laughs> exactly. And then if the trees that are growing in your churchyard are sacred, maybe the trees like on the fence, on other side of the fence, and maybe those trees up that are growing in the Wasatch Mountains, maybe oh, they're yeah. sacred too. <laughs> and so it was this sort of argument, but it started with what the value of what the people who are in that congregation feel about their own church and their own churchyard. And it wasn't trying to dissuade them or make them change their minds about what's what's important or what's sacred or what you're supposed to protect. Instead, just say, I'm a scientist, but I'm really curious about what you believe and what your holy scriptures say about trees. And let's explore that together. So Nalini, you have also done more work with another non-traditional or unique group of people. Tell us about the work you've done with people who are incarcerated. What I was thinking of, this was in my realm of like, hey, I've got to get away from National Geographic. I kept thinking like, who, what group in our society has the least access to nature and science education? And it was obvious, like, duh, people who are incarcerated. They live and work and engage 
and socialize in places that are virtually without any nature at all. Their prisons are designed that way. It's part of the punishment to live in concrete with nothing in the prison yard except dirt or grass. And so it seemed like that would be a good place to go. And so I started in Washington State with this one little project. Um, it turns out in Washington State, there's um, there's a lot of moss collecting that goes on for the horticulture trade, and it's not sustainable because we've done research on how long it takes to grow right. moss back when you strip it off branches of old growth forests like in the Pacific Northwest, and it, it can take 20, 30, 40 years to grow back. So it's not sustainable. And so I thought, wow, what if we learned how to grow mosses and then the horticulture trade would use those farmed mosses instead of these mosses that are stripped off of trees and collected from the wild. But nobody knows how to grow mosses because they've always been stripped out of these trees from the wild. So I thought, well, that would be a good project to sort of work on. But I didn't have any graduate students at the time. I didn't have space for it. So I thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity to engage people who are incarcerated with ecological restoration. So I started knocking on doors of state prisons. And a lot of prisons said, what are you doing here? This is a prison. This is not a conservation camp. but there was this one guy, one superintendent of a small minimum minimum security men's prison in Washington State, just like 30 minutes from where I worked. Um, he said, well, bring it on. You know, can't hurt. Maybe the guys will learn something or socialize better. Yeah, bring on the mosses. So I brought on the mosses. We, we collected these mosses from the wild, and we taught the inmates how to separate them into different species, and they... They grew them, they watered them, they cared for them. And I gave each of the men a, a notebook and a pencil and it said, you know, you guys are going to be the experts on this, so take notes and so forth. Um, came back every month to collect the mosses, talk about progress. And it was like a total success. They took fantastic care of these mosses. They loved doing it. They loved interacting with the students and with me. Um, they also felt that they, I think they, many of them felt that they were contributing to something that was bigger than them and that they were doing something that was helping literally the earth. And so I, all I could say was, yeah, you guys are doing something that's helping the earth. And they really, really loved that aspect of it. And so um, they said, do you have any other projects? You know, this was an 18-month project. We learned which species grow fastest and so forth. And so then I said, I started a seminar series where I just started talking to my faculty buddies and saying, hey, would you like to give a talk at this prison? These guys are really interested. They're really curious. And so my fa- fellow faculty would come in and we talked to the, the inmates and we had the guards sit in the same room as the prisons, prisoners did. And, you know, the prisoner, when somebody would ask a really great question and the guard would go like, oh my God, that guy's really smart. And, you know, the guard would ask a question and the prisoner would say, hey, that guy's really smart. And so it turned, in, and then we be- I began collaborating with other conservation groups, like the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife had a program to rear the um, state-sensitive um, species of frogs. It was called the Oregon Spotted frog and the conservationists came in and taught the inmates how to raise them from egg to tadpole to adult frog and then they took these adult frogs that they raised and set them free in these protected wetlands and then the nature conservancy came on board and taught the guys how to rear these 17 species of endangered prairie plants and then the u.s fish and wildlife service came over and they taught the women inmates how to raise the taylor checkerspot butterfly which is a a federally listed species that's endangered And then other prisons began hearing about this. It began being written up in newspapers because suddenly it was like people who are incarcerated can contribute to this important work of saving endangered species. They're not just screw-ups. They're not just dumb guys who don't care about the earth. They're really 
great people and they were great people i mean who knows what they did and we never asked like what was your crime or what you did but it was really just an opportunity to say here's a group of people who have a lot of time who have some space and most important they have this desire to contribute and so if we just give them a little bit of instruction about how to do this um why, why shouldn't they be full participants in the ecological restoration story of our planet and so that practice of engaging people who are incarcerated with con hands-on conservation experience has now spread to all 12 prisons within Washington State. We're doing it here at Draper State Prison at the Salt Lake County Jail. In 2017, um, we got a grant or a gift from the um, Utah State Board of Education to carry out science lectures and conservation projects in five juvenile detention facilities in Salt Lake Valley. Wow, that is truly just incredible and such powerful, impactful work. I, I, and it doesn't stop there. You've also done science communication work between scientists and students. Is, can you tell us about the STEM ambassador program? The STEM ambassador program is to train scientists to carry out public engagement using these sort of techniques of starting small, of figuring out what the community wants and so forth. But the STEM, uh, it's called INSPIRE, the initiative to bring science programs to the incarcerated is the program we have for adults to bring them research lectures and conservation projects at Draper State Prison and at the Salt Lake County Jail. And then you also have this, the STEM CAP program. What, what, tell us what's... Is the STEM Community Alliance program. And that is to bring science and scientists and also art science workshops to, to juveniles, to youth in custody who are now incarcerated in juvenile detention centers. And so um, that's funded by the Utah State Board of Education because they have a charge to educate everybody in our state until they're 18 years old, including those students who are incarcerated. So there are funds from the state that provide teachers for these kids who are in juvenile detention centers to give them a regular education, just like, just like any other Utah student, but because so many of these students, these youth in custody, have had broken homes, have had either drug problems or addiction problems themselves, or their parents have, or they've just been just messed around with for whatever reason, their education has tended to be fragmented, transferred from one place to another, out of school for a long time, thrown back into school. And so the Utah State Board of Education has come to understand that, and that's why they're funding this sort of I would call auxiliary method of getting more science, getting students, their students to have more direct connections with scientists from the University of Utah, um, having these wonderful art science workshops because some kids are turned off by science yeah. from their backgrounds, but they really like art or they really like poetry or they really like rap music. So we try to connect science with artists so that we can go in there and say, do a workshop on clouds and have an atmospheric scientist talk about the chemistry of cloud making, but also have a sign, an artist come in and say, hey, here's how to do watercolors. Let's make images of clouds. Mm -hmm. And so by bringing together, it's sort of like environmental humanities. When you bring together beautiful text with environmental issues, you end up with this much richer, I think, offering to people who want to learn about the earth than if you were just going to present scientific facts and figures. And it doesn't stop there. You've done so much. You've countless other public engagement projects and initiatives from churches to prisons to universities. It's truly incredible how dedicated your your research and your your career has been to, you know, not just conducting the scientific research that's very much important, but sharing it in a way that is 
um, meaningful and impactful to all communities across um, our, our society. So you, you've talked a lot about what, you know, what your work has done for these, these non-traditional communities engaging with a, uh, conservation science and ecology. But what do you think, um, you know, your team or you, what have you learned, I guess, in engaging with the public in this way? We often think with public engagement, it's for the benefit of the audience that we're presenting to. But what I've learned in all of this public engagement stuff with, you know, with groups that are sort of not standard is that, is that when you do the act of public engagement, if you're willing to be intellectually humble and willing to listen and willing to open your mind even a little bit about what you're actually experiencing, that action, like just giving a lecture, I mean, that's something that every single researcher knows how to do. How we're paid to do that. We practice it. We know how to give a lecture. Um, then that means that being in academia can actually be can serve social justice yeah. because the, many of the scientists came back and they wrote letters to their congresspeople and they said there should be more money for correctional education. And so this, even if it was like just one time, one lecture, one encounter, it turns out that that affected this group of academics who you usually think are so busy, so full of themselves, so sure of their own pathway that you wouldn't imagine that just giving one lecture to this group of sort of underserved people would affect them, but it did. And so we published some papers on that also about the value of public engagement for social justice purposes. And I think maybe with all the 140 papers I've published and all this publishing I've done in different kinds of publications from Playboy to poetry <laughs> to environmental humanities journals, probably the most important thing that I've done has been to help academics understand that they can learn from people who are incarcerated. And I think that's a really important thing for people who are privileged in academia who have been given so much, like me. I mean, I grew up with a home that valued education and sent me to a really great school, a private school, and then I got fellowships all through graduate school, and I've been funded by the National Science Foundation, by Europe's tax dollars and everybody's tax dollars. What does that mean? What does that mean as an academic, as a person of privilege? And I think it means not only do we have to focus on these things that bring us great pleasure, which is curiosity-driven research and publishing papers in these obscure journals that other scientists get really excited about, but that I think we do have a responsibility to, in some way, in some fashion, to give back to society through our science. And not every scientist has to start a prison program or run around giving talks in churches or, you know, they don't have to follow my example. But I think, I think there are many ways that scientists can contribute to society in addition to the, their contribution with contributing to the scientific record. There you have her, folks. The wonderful, the bright, and exquisite Dr. Nalini Nidkarni. I am so grateful to have had this opportunity to chat in detail about her passion for forest ecology and science communication. I hope you all who have tuned in feel inspired to think creatively about how you too can share important information and research with those non-traditional or underrepresented audiences. Everyone has a role to play in the fight towards environmental justice. So how can we make sure that everyone has an opportunity to listen, to learn and contribute to the cause? I dare you to think.
You're listening to Sustain, a podcast by the University of Utah Sustainability Office. For monthly episodes, subscribe to Sustain on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To learn more about our work, visit sustainability.utah.edu or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sustainable U of U. Interviews and editing of this podcast episode were done by me, your host, Sydney Murray. The music in this podcast is provided by Envato.com.